This episode of IPv6 Buzz is brought to you by IT Pro TV. Start or grow your IT career with online IT training from IT Pro TV. And we have a special offer for IPv6 Buzz listeners. Sign up and save 30% off all plans. ITPro.tv slash buzz and use promo code buzz at checkout and save 30% off all plans. Welcome to the IPv6 Buzz podcast, where we dare to dive into the 128-bit address space wormhole. Quick reminder, there's sponsorship opportunities available for IPv6 Buzz and all the other Packet Pusher podcast shows. So if you're interested, go to packetpushers.net slash sponsorship and you can get all the details. And if you've got something cool working with V6, hey, we want to hear about it. So come join us on the V6 Buzz and we can uh, talk all about it. So I'm Ed Horley with my co-host Tom Coffeen. Scott Hogue is out today, but uh, we're going to be talking about APNIC. And, and and a few other topics with our guest, George Michelson. So, George, welcome to the show. <laughs> it's great to Hi. have you on. And, um, you know, let's let's jump into it because I think for the majority of our audience, they may not be as familiar with uh, some of the other RIRs. Uh, I mean, we talk about, you know, Aaron quite a bit, but uh, AP Nick is is the counterpart. So why don't you give us the, the quick summary overview about what, what what's going on, what you guys do, and where you fit in the big landscape of things. <laughs> Well, thanks for letting me come and talk on the podcast, by the way, Ed and Tom. Um, it's really nice to have a chance to rap about what's going on in V6 in region. APNIC is um, the Asia-Pacific Network Information Center, and we are the second RIR after the RIPE NCC. To say that, you kind of have to cheat a bit because Aaron didn't exist until quotes later, end quotes, but there was always a registry function in North America. So really, we're kind of the third, but there's the legalism. We were formed first, but um, it's a large footprint. It's a large population, and it's a large body of a mixture of early adopters, the tertiary education and research sector in the Asian universities, high energy physics, um, that field. My personal experience is coming out of Arnet, the Australian research network, but it's the same footprint in almost all the economies in our region coming up to full ISP state. But then there's kind of the politics of envy here because there was so much early adoption in the North American and European footprint that there was a quite high asymmetry in terms of access to resources. And our development's been quite informed by really huge economic forces, China, India, South Korea, Indonesia. These are big populations waking up to the fact that modern telephony, mobile telephony, internet was going to be dominant and that they had to get their hands on addressing resources to have equity in that market. So it's kind of an interesting question of how do you catch up? And then also bringing V6 to the table, is V6 an opportunity for more substantive equity for those communities in the global network? It's interesting. Our policy process is broadly similar. Um, we do have this one difference that because of the way we came about, there are some pre-existing national internet registries. So we have like a federated structure. We have six or seven independent agencies, independent in the sense that their own self-governing body, but they absolutely conform to our global policy behavior. They participate in policy development. They're significant players in our region. They they've informed the EC quite consistently and they participate very heavily. So we're kind of different in that sense because you, Aaron, you have a very flat structure. It's the ISPs and it's Aaron. Well, we have a bit of an infrastructure in between. But other than that, same, same. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I didn't realize that you guys had so many entities that were sort of stand out standalone that way in terms of because they're country specific, I'm assuming. Yes, they are. Um, we actually have to be quite careful. We try hard to avoid the word country for various political layer nine reasons. Yeah. But yeah, they're independent yeah. economies. <laughs> economies. <laughs> Very topical in this current geopolitical circumstance, yes. I might add. It's all about sovereignty, right? Uh, <laughs> yep. Yeah, and Moving and right and along. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, nothing to see here. <laughs> yeah, we have it's similar with uh, maybe it's similar to with Lat LATAM, and this is hopefully much less controversial. Like the uh, you know LATAM has uh, Mexico has its own registry in Brazil. Oh yeah, it's it's, it's very it's very similar, yeah. and 
I have been to I've been to LACNIC meetings, and it's actually fascinating to hear the different communities talking about this. Mexico has a very strong dominance of a single market player in the ISP space. Um, is it Carlos Slim? I think Telmex, they are huge. Whereas Chile is much more about, like Australia, the academic and medical and research network development. And they had very interesting debates because people from economically driven communities are going, addresses are valuable. Wow, okay, we need to sell them because then we can get things happening and make money. And the Chileans are standing up saying, this is our national heritage. We need to preserve this value. Then someone else gets up and says, I have a teaching hospital that needs to buy a new MRI machine. If my addresses are valuable and I can buy an MRI machine, isn't that better for me? And I'm sitting there going, I never thought address policy was going to be like this. But it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And and I think there was some, there was a lot of intransigence initially it says in Brazil with the service providers that were that were looking as if they were going to just bit like be the Bitter enders where large scale NATs, carrier grade NAT was concerned. Um, this was probably yeah. like 2012, 2013 timeframe. And, but, but and the, there the, is a really, there is a really interesting story. Sorry, you finish and then I'll come oh, in. So. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that uh, BR Nick was, was very instrumental in, in sort of steering them away from that, uh, that grisly yeah. fate of being locked in with, uh, with a lot of CGN. So there is, there is a very interesting thing going on in the dynamic of networks in Central South America. The Spanish telecommunications company, Telefonica, is the major player in provision of service in South America. And they have a quite conservative policy facing telecommunications in Spain. They don't do aggressive V6 in Spain because they have a stable national network and they don't see a need. South America is amazing. I mean, you look at the stats, Brazil is up at 39%. Uruguay is on 52%. Argentina's on 20%. They are bringing it home. And in almost all cases, it's a Telefonica subsidiary that's doing it. And I've spoken with some engineers there, and they've told me, we cannot buy technology without approval from central office in Europe. So every time we put in an order for a population of 200 million people to get CPE, which are V6 enabled, they sign off on it. They know what we're doing and they know that the technology works. And you sort of go, well, if they know it's working and if you're a bigger market than them and you've successfully deployed, why aren't they doing this in Madrid? Yeah, that's it's, that's probably that economic incentive of like, have you have you sweated your assets for as long as possible if you don't yeah. have a change? And I, I yeah. think that's it's, a, it's purely an economic incentive as opposed to a you know, well, maybe that's not the right growth mindset, which I think yeah, you're seeing could the other be. side. Uh, I, it I, could be market saturation. And if you come into our region, India, the story of IPv6 in India. Oh, is, yeah. I mean, what a story, right? Yep, There's Jio. They're like 15th ranked in national footprint, and they decide they are going to capture significant market share. They do a clean build of 4G. They do a clean deployment of handsets that work on this 4G platform. They offer nationwide free uncapped data. If you take their minimum $10 a month equivalent service, they target families who have moved. So traditional behavior in India is that women move to the household of the husband when they get married. And mm. there's a big mother-daughter communications burden. They never mention V6 once in their messaging to the community and look at them now. They're the market dominant player and they've single-handedly driven India to top ranking in contribution to V6 worldwide. And the other providers have looked at it and they've kind of gone, oh my God, and reacted. There's been a clear market reaction from Bharti Airtel and from other providers to come up to speed and deploy V6. It's stunning. Yeah, it was it was really remarkable to see them um, at least tracking through several different sites the stats in regards to India and how quickly what Reliance Geo had had done and how how fast you could you could see the measurements just rise basically almost overnight in terms of like them clicking on and just the growth of how quickly they built their subscriber base. It's really quite remarkable. Um, I, I think about the supply chain logistics to make a, a thing like that happen. You know, you send out the mail from central office. We're turning on service delivery in October. And then you go, great. How many handsets do I need? Uh, 650 million? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just a staggering number. I mean, it's, it's hard. Let me go check the warehouse. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let right. me go build the warehouse. <laughs> yeah, that's it, yes. And several more after that first one. Yeah, I, I think people don't realize like the when we talk percentage adoption, but then you look at the population density because I, I think it's very it's sort of um, you know some of the rankings are a little funny in terms of like oh yeah you so you know whatever fifty two percent for U.S. population or you know fifty percent for U.S. population, but that's great. But there's three hundred thirty million people here, fifty percent you know versus you know sixty percent in you know India with its you know whatever. 1.2 billion 1.2 1.3 billion people it's like yeah. it's not even a comparable number right it's so it's the quite, thing it's is quite staggering you kind of have to sometimes look a level below because there can be some misleading figures that come out we actually in the labs measurement we recently got caught by some of that it's a it's quite a nice little story if we've got time for it yeah absolutely so we had a huge surge in ipv6 uptake in singapore and our blog, we love to celebrate success in regions. So the blog editorial team were doing, guys, can you tell us about this? We'd love to do what's going on. What's the competitive tension? Meantime, Jeff, who runs labs, Jeff Houston is the chief scientist and the measurement activity that we do is driven almost completely by work he's done over the last 10 years mm -hmm. using paid advertising to do random measurements of clients. It's a very different measurement to a lot of people who are looking in the center at traffic levels. This is direct engagement with browsers and game players on handhelds. Can you, the user, actually do V6 right now? Anyway, the thing is, he's looking at massive dislocation in his numbers for the region, really bizarre movements between economies. So he's motivated to look for what's going on with my measurement rig. And we're motivated to look for what's the story about competitive tension we can blog about. We go drill down into Singapore. The top reason Singapore has risen is because Cloudflare's AS, AS1335 is now a third to half of all the measurements in the Singaporean economy. And if you go down four in the table, Linode, and if you go down six in the table, OVH, you're a DC. Seven is Amazon. Twelve mm. is DigitalOcean. What's going on? Well, it turns out Apple, Apple's virtual private browse without tracing mechanism is a VPN, and they've outsourced the VPN to Cloudflare, Akamai, and Fastly, I believe. It's a random pick between the three. And Singapore is their Asian hub for Cloudflare, where if you don't have in-region DC and high transit, your packets are going to emerge because that's where they can provide the VPN termination. It's an Asia-wide footprint, and it's about <laughs> geolocation. Singapore so, itself, the residual traffic levels, they're the same that they've always been. Singtel, mm -hmm. the major provider, they're not doing V6, they're market dominant. It's second rank providers, Starhub, Mobile One, who are doing the V6 deployment. But we thought we had this huge footprint. Wow, Singapore's alive. It's not Singapore. <laughs> it's so it's, so it's really just a VPN transport service. Right, but come back a bit on this and let's say, do users really care where their packets emerge from? Well, if they're trying to get around intellectual property limits, they do because they're using it to get Netflix from the economy they're licensed to see things in. Put that to one side. No, they don't give a rat's. And so to me, this is an amazing signal. Something as simple as advertising, private browsing, no tracking can increase V6 presence at the edge. It is overlay and tunnels, and you know the mantra. Maybe you guys don't have the mantra. We have the mantra. Tunnels are bad. <laughs> but, you know, these are pretty good tunnels. The Apple engineers, they knew what they were doing. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that I think is coming together now. We've had 20, 25 years of trying to get V6 to lift off. We're now 30% globally. We're well past liftoff. What are the niggling problems we're still talking about? We're talking about fragmentation. We're talking about PTB and ICMP. We're talking about filtering on the network, extension headers and behaviors for routing. Tunnels are kind of in that mix. We had the whole 10, 15 year window of tunnels are bad. What if we fixed some of the badness and now tunnels are good? Interesting. Yeah, I think it's. I think people are coming to the compromise that tunnels are a um, 
you know, our, our tool and our tool belt that we should use appropriately when, when it makes sense. Uh, I think we're, the industry overall is getting more pragmatic about that. And certainly if you believe that things like, you know, encapsulation or tunnels, <laughs> that's a debate, right? VXN, yeah. EVPN, et cetera. But um, your use of the word pragmatism, that is a word in my heart as well, because a lot of the quality of discussion in early stage drafts that I'm seeing in IETF these days are still in that what if state, kind of exploring potential futures. And they have not anti-pragmatic, but maybe less pragmatic qualities. Meanwhile, at the meeting, what I was experiencing was, if not trench warfare, an interesting continuing debate about how much of this technology actually works. We do. <laughs> so there's a there's a kind of duality going on there, right? I, I, I think there's a bit of, uh, I don't know what the right analogy to use to describe it, but there are now some more folks participating in ITF that I consider to have a little bit more operator experience in terms of trying to... yeah get from point A to point B and are basically coming and laying things at the at, at the feet of of the ITF and saying, you know, we're running into some problems here and and maybe you guys want to ponder and think about this sort of stuff, but here's some pragmatic, you know, real world. Oh, we're, we're good at pondering. We ponder <laughs> like nobody else. We are the professionals <laughs> of ponderation. Well, some, of the, some of the debates on the mail list get very, very interesting in terms of... Um, <laughs> but, but making the shift from pondering to ponderous, dare I say it? it yeah. <laughs> Ooh, good segue. <laughs> well, yes. and that's the risk, right? And I, and and you you bring up an, a critical point related to the 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 problems that the technology can solve if one is is being duly pragmatic about about what solution you know gets the job done and moving packets around. Uh, and, and, and the earlier point made about users awareness or lack of awareness of, of what the particular path that a packet takes. And so it, the technology that, that exists where, you know, and, and V6 is certainly maybe an opportunity to sort of reclaim a lot of these technologies that, that have gotten a bad reputation. Like we, we yeah. have to, we have to constantly sort of, you know, I, I have to constantly sort of deprogram myself from the idea that that you know all NAT is bad. I mean, we in V six that you know going to V six yeah. conference after V six conference, and you know this we're is like, going to have we're going to have V six address translation happening. And yeah, right. Is if address right. translation the, is bad, it is not helpful. The, exactly, right. and and it and it ties back into the point related to tunnels. And I mean, clearly, you know, artisanally crafting a boutique network of static. Statically configured tunnels is not something only that virgin lumber. It's <laughs> only virgin lumber, and I select it from the left side of the mountain. It, yes, <laughs> a perfect analogy. So, so yeah, but it's good to see that there there is more of a, a sort of operational tilt happening. So, so this ATF. this actually this actually strikes something in my head because recently I wrote a very short piece about um, semantic addressing. And I think it's really interesting that having established the routing plane for six that is just BGP and just works. I mean, it does. It just works. People are coming back into the routing space saying, I want to rethink how packets flow here. Okay, you guys have provided a connectivity signal and you've given me a guarantee a packet will get through. Great. You're also really bad at traffic engineering. I mean, you've got nothing. You seriously have nothing. And here I am with a technology that is designed to have additional information put into the packet in an extensible manner. Couldn't I use that to give you a hint? Couldn't I use that to say, I never want this packet to flow over satellite links? And I'm going, could you do that in this stuff? And that's the examples they've got. If I'm forced to reroute, what are the paths that I'm prepared to have you use on my behalf to send my packet. And I'm thinking, this is really good stuff. This is really interesting stuff for complex novel forms of routing and reliability, privacy, secrecy, security. I think it's really interesting that people are exploring that space. But it kind of then came to, yeah, but if the signal in the EH conversation is that you can't do more than two and you can't do EH for the edge, you can do it in the center, and we still don't entirely know why, you're building castles in the air. Yeah. And and I think that so that and that go to me that always reminds me that these types of scenarios always remind me of sort of the 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 
the nirvana of interdomain multicast that could never really evolve and appear because it, it really all the problems were not technology related. They were all at layer eight and above yeah. uh, related to how do you, because we're really talking about interfaces for which, you know, you, you may, you may solve the technical problem relatively easily if you're being, as we say, pragmatic. But the question then becomes, what are those, what do those interfaces look like at layer eight and above? And is that, that is that even a solvable problem? So what I, what I find interesting in that scenario of the layer eight question and the problem space about who's interested and who's seeking solutions here is that thing that comes up in V6 ops and maybe six man a lot, the SME segment just isn't present. Why aren't the SMEs jumping on board? And I think it's the quality of the engagement across that boundary. Their needs in networking aren't quite the same as, as me as a home consumer or a corporate entity or a government. They're looking at a different problem space. And I have a feeling the cell, and it's a long-term cell, the cell with them is on stories that they haven't yet believed V6 had a differentiating advantage. Because if you're in that segment, the nobody got fired for buying IBM energy is incredibly strong. Being asked to shift technology base without a solid reason why is really hard, really, really hard. I mean, you know, we've been buying the same brand of printer for 25 years, and it's not like it's the best. It's the energy in CapEx and yeah. in OpEx in printing and in drivers and in TCO that makes people say, oh, I'm not moving. Right. And I think I think these novel technologies that Six offered, I mean, do you remember the glory days back in 1998 when we all thought it was going to be the IPsec story that took us there? V6 is secure by default. All six will be fully IPsec enabled. Didn't happen. I interrupt the podcast today for a quick word from our sponsor, IT Pro TV. Do you remember the ransomware attack on the gas pipeline from last year? That is an example of how cybersecurity professionals are in demand. There are more than 500,000 open cybersecurity roles, and you can become a cybersecurity professional with some online training. It's never too late to start a new career in IT or move up the ladder, and IT Pro TV, today's sponsor, has you covered. From CompTIA and Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft. IT Pro TV is offering more than 5,800 hours of on-demand training, and they, they teach it with engaging hosts. They present information in a talk show format, so it's not boring. They're live every day if you like live content, and the shows that they record each day, those go studio to web in 24 hours. The courses are conveniently listed by category, certification, and job role, and you can stream IT Pro TV's courses live or on-demand worldwide via really any platform you want. Roku, Apple TV, PC, or their iOS or Android apps. Learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash buzz for 30% off all plans and use promo code buzz at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash buzz and use promo code buzz at checkout. One more time, itpro.tv slash buzz and use promo code BUZZ at checkout to save 30% off all plans. And now back to the podcast. Well, and I, I think your points around the sort of the SMB market, there's, there's also an expectation that they want to be good at their business. They don't want to be good at business of tech, right? Unless tech is their market. So for them, they're more than willing to consume what the mid-level broadband provider is going to give them uh, to solve their related technology needs, especially around networking. And to be honest, the, the services that they require and the stuff they consume doesn't require them to move off of it until their provider actually decides that they need to move them. Yeah. I, th I think there's a certain amount of just inertia that those providers are not going to tackle that market segment until they get done with the residential broadband subscribers and handle all the enterprise network connections. Then they're like, this is the last bastion of stuff. We can then go build solutions around it. But the good news is that we timed it around the release of, you know, net new CPEs and a solution rollout. So we'll just move everyone incrementally as we upgrade their plans over the next three to five years. And I, I think there's a bit of, and there's also, I hate to say this, there is zero solution offerings coming out of the IETF about multi-homing correctly for 
oh, a, yeah. provider, a provider like that that wants to have you know provider A, provider B, but doesn't want to do BGP and right. And and look at look at that, that whole look at that whole debate. There was a mini debate about um, incorrect address selection criteria, <laughs> yes. and yes. it's kind of people are still writing shell scripts to try and tickle their Linux node to see if they understand the behavior. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It, it's this is not to get at any individual because I actually think what people were saying on the list was brilliant. It's exactly the conversation that's needed, but. But gee, we're really late in the life of this technology. Dude, this not world, to have that worked out. Okay, okay, so this is where I'm going to call the ITF out. This was a complete blind spot in not understanding what operators were doing and how the market works. And the whole anti-NAT conversation just eliminated a whole segment of existing customer base that did not translate over well from an operational use case of you know, customers that are paying money to solve their problem of I need highly available internet, but I don't want to readdress my network every single time I have to flop back and forth between two different providers. But if you drive the address selection pressure to favor V4 over any V6 in that scenario, you simply won't use the locally unique V6 you designed as yep. an ad hoc addressing mechanism. It's like yep. we said, here's this amazing technology that's designed for large corporate networks to never have to care if their address is wrong with another company. P.S. You're never gonna use it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for dual stack networks, that's true. Yeah, and, and and you know Nick and you know Nick and Chris and and Russ did a good job, really sort of laying that out within. I thought within the the draft that they proposed and put together. I mean, that Nick was kind enough; he was on the last show and and, and mentioned that you know some of it was based off the blogs that <laughs> that I wrote for, I, for InfoBlogs. But uh, I, yeah. I I also I also find some of the discussion around fine tuning ND really really fascinating because lurking mm. in the background there's still this cavern between stateless auto config and stateful dhcp v6 mm. behavior the yeah. two tribes <laughs> do i, do I auto config <laughs> or do i get yeah. told well and this and this is where and i was going to bring that up related to this idea that you know that we can we can give uh the benefit of the doubt to those uh, to those participants in the discussion that are like looking for a pragmatic solution on the ULA side, but where does the benefit of the doubt fall in that, in, in that those two irre irreconcilable camps where on the one hand, you know, we, we deal with a lot of clients, you know, larger enterprises that are just utterly flabbergasted and perplexed that that's just not a, an operational choice that they have to, to have DHCPv6 working for all of the, 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 panoply of bring your own devices that are showing up in an enterprise network and you know very specifically obviously i'm referring to android here that just won't support oh, yeah. the hcpv6 and so oh yeah so so whatever benefit of the doubt is being accumulated by you know being willing to have this operational discussions around how ula is not working properly and what needs to happen to make that you know it's like on the other hand just how are we going to get around like you know i want to i want to keep my pragmatic wizard's cap firmly on my head but it you know it just there, there's just no. It doesn't seem like there's so, there's any resolution to this uh, this issue. So I kind soon. of, I kind of have an Asian, Asia Pacific perspective in this. Perfect. Because, because we have this weird duality. We're the factory that makes most of the CPE that's going to be used in most of the world. So questions about burnt in silicon, bootstrap, early stack behavior, low stack behavior, they drive really quickly to the very small community of developers and coders writing logic that goes into these systems. And they go very quickly to the primary conversation between an ISP, a telco, and their backend source of CPE and network infrastructure. They're going to wind up talking to people who are targeting factories in Asia. We're making the gear. And so there's a bit of a dog fooding story there. Do we actually test this stuff in local markets well enough to know how it works? Well, for quite a long time, V6 deployment in the Asian footprint was really low. And so I suspect a lot of this technology does not get tested outside lab. It's tested in factory labs, but there's no local in time zone, in language, scale deployment where people are saying, eh, your CPE behaves really strangely. And 
I don't think it helps. I really don't think it helps this story at all. That's not to say there isn't a whole other conversation higher up the stack about should we be stateful or stateless and where are the knobs to turn it off or on. But when you're talking about how the technology itself behaves, an awful lot of that points back in our region. And there are funny hesitancies in our communities around making these kinds of deployment decisions. I mean, I... I'm probably a partisan in this. I used to think I was a DHCP lover, and I now really value simply not caring what the binding association is. I no longer think in address terms when I'm trying to find my local file store or my television. I'm using higher protocol behavior to unpack name to address binding, and I'm just finding the file store irrespective of its local address choice. So. In my own experience, I've walked off the belief I control the binding. But I also know virtually all the telcos in mobile are doing static bind output. They're not doing random assign. And I know that my providers put a prefix uh, 56 on my house. And I'm kind of okay with that because it means I can do the V6 inbound from nodes outside. I'm kind of living in two worlds mentally. There's the edge of me that's a DHCP V6 PD, and there's the inside, which is stateless, and I'm blissfully happy. I then go and deal with my office confreres who are running the network. They're doing MAC address lockdown. I mean, you cannot plug a random device in, right? And right. so their world drives so quickly to, you tell me what your box is, I'll tell you if I let it be on this network. It's a different cultural behavior. So yeah. here we are buying CPE. We say must do DHCP v6, fine. Then we do, oh, yeah, but on the inside, we're going to do Slack. Okay, fine. Turn it on. Wait, there's no six. Wait, there's no six. Wait, I'm going to reboot, reboot. Oh, I got six 10 minutes later. Oh, wait, there's no six. Turns <laughs> out, turns out there's a timing bug. There's a provider to CPE device timing bug. And if it does not probe with the RT solicit in a magic interval, it backs off two minutes. And I'm sitting there going, where did you guys get two minutes from to decide not to re-ask? <laughs> and I'm thinking, who do I even talk to in your software chain to suggest that you should have a more aggressive polling cycle on reboot? Or, I mean, do you even want me to tell you that something's wrong here? And that's the kind of stuff that just it just makes my brain burst with this far down the life cycle and things like DHCP v6 PD or RT solicit don't work properly sometimes. Oh man, really? Yeah, well, I mean, just the fact that your prefix would change, uh, right? Yeah. There's, there's a whole problem here in the US in regards to some of the service providers uh, saying that once we actually see a CPE do a reboot you won't get the the same prefix that you had just had <laughs> oh you're making me go you're making me go to dns and change my dns binding to root back in yes there's why a, why yeah so there's all sorts of things so fernando actually submitted a, a draft to do stable stable prefix over a reboot for yeah for so i think that one move forward is that i can't remember tom if, if i don't know if you remember either but uh but i thought that one to move forward for for um for that proposal. So anyway. So there were, two, there were two things that emerged when I say there's an Asian context. There were actually two pressures that emerged in my region that really interested me. Vietnam is a transitional market economy. It is essentially an open market or open, interesting word, but it is. It's a market economy with state controls. And so the ISP community there had a really quite strong binding conversation and they picked FPT FP Telecom, who have a large fiber deploy to field trial V6 at scale. And they use that experience to work out the kinds of problems they might experience in the CPE deployment. Now, you translate that into a US situation. Is AT&T really going to say, Comcast, you field trial it and we'll do the technology after you've picked it? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're, they're not sharing that information, right? I mean, I'm okay, you do. There's war stories, engineers talk, but it's not it's not formalized. No, yeah, not at all. 220 million people, they formalize the test bed nationally. Interesting. Okay, let's go another direction. Indonesia, 
an amazing market. Have you counted how many AS numbers there are in Indonesia? It's like a thousand. Wow. They have so many stub ASs because, come on, guys, what's the central telecom behavior there? Indonesia is another economy in transition from interesting political outcomes. So they have a high preponderance of a single vendor relationship because they absolutely go cheapest known to work. They all bought Macrotic, which is a brilliant unit, except when you push into two niches, RPKI and IPv6. They've been a little slow in doing some of the bug fix on that path. So their edge experience doing build out has been a little mixed and they are really risk averse. The primary customers in their commercial market segment is government and defense. Rather than building out private defense networks, they just tell all the local squadrons, ships, airports, use internet, just get the local internet provider to give you connectivity. I mean, for secret signaling, I'm sure they have a whole different layer. But for general purpose, yeah, that's the primary drive. And those guys are really risk averse. The SLA for them is don't fail. So their tendency, what have we got? We're all buying Macrotic. Does it work well for six? Uh, we're having a few issues. Mm, I think I might hold off on turning that on. So there's kind of weird forces at play in my region. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating because I don't think we have an, a good analogy for that. For I mean, George, maybe this is a good question for you because it, just view-wise, I mean, we're sort of settled market here for service providers and how we sort of do route advertisements and and what the global sort of the global backbone sees in terms of you know v6 related traffic but i imagine it's much more dynamic in the asia pacific region in terms of how that's playing out i mean in terms of uh, especially in terms of the total number of ases maybe and, well, and stub, stub areas i don't know how that plays out for so you that, so there's some there's some aspects of this that i would say yes and no, I mean, it's kind of, it depends, right? So late arrival into the marketplace meant that we actually had more competitive players at the door when the decision was, let's do this, because we'd had back pressure building up behind monopoly telcos that had their capital investment. And then we had deregulation led to an explosion of competitive ISPs, nobody doing six. And then we have the signal time to start doing six where you've got more players coming to the door. There's that. There's also the other side, which is, yeah, we have a market, but it's still about China Telecom and China Unicom. We're a two provider market. And virtually <laughs> all that diversity in ASs you see are small independent startups and stubs. They're not economically important in terms of the provision of service to volume customers. That's so I think for all of the really big economies, if you said go down five in the list of ASs that are visible in region, you've probably got over 80% of the market. Got now, it. you could drive a long way towards Hill-Sherman theory and you know competitive tension is five players enough, market share scale. There's all economic conversation there. But on five, if two of them do six, it's a really interesting question if it's the top two or the bottom two, because that can make a difference between six in the economy being at 60 to 70% or being at 20 to 30% just because of the shape of the curve. Hmm. So you've got all these other ASs, you know, like Indonesia, a thousand ASs. And the edge ASs, they're the guys who are interesting and excited and who'll turn on six, turn up a tunnel, hurricane electric. I mean, my God, those guys help bootstrap so much V6 along with Sixus. But at the same time, you're sort of sitting there as a provider going, seriously, you're going to send your customers over this? Really? Right. Okay, yeah. scary. But nonetheless, these guys on the edge, well, they're facing long RTT and packet loss anyway. So turning up a new flavor to see if it's interesting, it's really not that big a deal. But the problem is each of them captures effectively a thousand customers in a million customer market. They have really low statistical impact. They're all stubs behind the upstream, which remains the former monopoly telco. That's the classic pattern throughout the region. And if that former monopoly telco, Singtel in Singapore, you know, Indosat, those players, if they don't light up, the packets don't flow and you get really quite sad outcomes of islands of v6 that are interesting locally 
but no further transit. And you get people fronting on labs where the measurement is measuring end-to-end -end V6 saying, I know I've got 80%, 90% penetration. Why don't you guys see it? And all you have to do is say, fine, can you V6 ping this node in Singapore? And then they go quiet because they realize very quickly they have six, but they don't have transit. No. And and I'm I'm stunned at that. I would have thought that the whole ferment of competitive tension would have taken care of that. But I'm I'm kind of driven to the words market failure. Yeah, we have a lot of ASs. No, it didn't provide a competitive tension that led to the outbreak of six as a real force. Different forces make six happen. Right. Yeah. Well, and uh, I've got a curiosity for you because it's it's obviously I don't track it uh, extensively, and uh, you know probably shame on me, but oh no, 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 but, no shame. <laughs> it's a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, you know China and China Telecom, obviously they've been ramping up quite a bit on V six. So just oh gosh, know, yes. And 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 I, I guess I just have a, a generic question for AP Nick is how do you actually measure what China is up to from a V six perspective because of how they have you know, sort of chosen to to wall themselves off from a, from a policy and, and network access perspective. I mean, obviously, there you can do stuff in country, but I, I, don't, okay. I don't know if that impacts. Great question. Great question. The GFC exists, and there is no point pretending it doesn't. But the GFC is a quite, that's the great firewall of China. The GFC, <laughs> not the global financial crisis. The Great Firewall exists, but maybe it's, it's the same. <laughs> oh, clever! I like it. So the thing is, it's a complex beast. It's not as simple as an IP block list. It's not an ACLIC IP block list across the board. It's quite clever. It looks at rates of packet flow and it looks at DNS and it decides. Well, we think that we're not comfortable with this DNS target. We're going to alter the DNS label return. They play tricks in the DNS and send you to 1.1.1.1 or 8.8.8.8 or some other random address, which is a little naughty. And if you happen to be on one of those random addresses and you're getting unusual flows, it could be for various reasons. So people modify their DNS stack. They put an etc. hosts in, which means the packets will actually flow. Then a second tier filter comes in and says, yeah, uh, you, you're doing a TCP long live call. I know the nature of these interpacket arrival times. You're watching video from overseas. I think I'm going to intrude some drop. And they do packet drop and eventually the user goes home because the experience is terrible. At the extreme, you get a redirect to a site that says, we're watching. And so that's the social pressure element. Mm. People pick up on the clue. So think about an advert that's being displayed in line in a game. It's a banner ad. It sends as few packets as possible to get you the HTML5 experience for the ad. And it's fishing for a click. But the click rate in these things is measured in fractions of a percent. Are those guys going to tickle the firewall? No, they're not, because it's only a two-packet exchange to get all the payload to show that ad. So think about APNIC parasitically doing five DNS label fetches in that ad. Okay, there's the DNS component. If we never see your DNS query, we know you got filtered out. We can't really measure you beyond that point. You've dropped off the radar. But if your DNS comes out and we give you a label that is bound to a V6-only host, you're probably only doing two packets to fetch our invisible pixel. It doesn't hit the filter limit. Hmm. It really is highly likely it comes through. So we had people saying, mm, don't like this theory. Why don't you measure inside China? Okay, good point. I don't know if you've tried, but getting a general purpose host in a DC in China is actually logistically quite difficult because you need to be an enterprise in China to have rights to be present in that fabric. It's hard. And we were very lucky that we had a member of the Chinese Academy of Sciences who was actually quite interested in networking, uh, Xing Li, who you will know because of the work that he's done on mechanisms for V6, V4 carriage and interoperation and that kind of stuff. So Xing Li made available to us a machine in Beijing University, and we got full stack ownership root. We installed the software and we directed ads to his node. It didn't move the dial on our numbers. The percentages of V6 seen remained pretty consistent. 
Oh, and we did it for about we did it for about three months, and we said, "You've been incredibly helpful. There's nothing to see here." And so that was actually very difficult for China Telecom because China Telecom, unquestionably, I know those engineers; they're good people. They have a national V6 network of significance, but for whatever reason. Its ability to perform end-to-end V6 dialogue outside their own footprint appears to be constrained, and I mean you could theorise why that is, but it just doesn't break through the magic number. You know their figures are sitting at twenty to thirty percent. You go down into someone like China Mobile, interesting mobile edge device router switch interactions in mobile telephony really quite different to fiber landline they're up at 50 60 percent they're actually comparable to mainstream us numbers but the problem is that they do so much routing through their backbone network both in china unicom and china net china telecom that obviously has lower penetration in effectively they're sitting on 20 to 30 percent that these these other networks just don't achieve the scale that gets them there. Their market has quite a large number of ASs, and if you look in them in their naming structures, you can see quite easily that it's a segmented regional market. They're kind of like baby bells. So China Mobile has headquarters in Hunan and in Beijing and in Shandong and in Guangdong, and each of them is an independent AS. And if you go down that list, they're 50%, 60%, 70%, 80%. But they're also not high market share. There may be four or five hundred thousand samples against four million samples coming off the China Net Core right. AS. And that China Net Core AS has some issue that is difficult to unpack. And there's kind of an ethics thing here. If I were a general interest scientist, I'd probably be hammering on their door saying, This is fascinating. I've got papers and PhDs in this. I'm not. I'm a policy governance related guy in a body that needs to be very careful of local sensitivities. And if I hammer on their door to try and unpack something that's a, I shall use the language, petty disagreement between two senior C star executives, that's not good for anybody. So I'm kind of reluctant to really drill into why things don't get seen there because I don't want to rock the boat. Hmm. But is it fascinating? Oh yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah, there's a bit of um, there's a bit of opacity for for those of us in the in the North American market for sort of understanding what's happening there, and and why you know the you know certainly their participation in the ITF and and in many of the just g- generic industry bodies across across the world uh, for participation their 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 interest in V six has has accelerated I guess yes and, and their participation has accelerated so it's been a very interesting yes. finding. And And it is very strongly driven in national policy objectives around the strategic deployment of networks that are suitable for a Chinese perspective on social behaviors and the development of society and investment of a long-term nature towards their economic development. And it really is ITU-driven process. The whole IPNG thing has a very strong presence in this. They are looking at things like... um, segment headers and and complex routing and source addressing and thinking about models of network that suit their idea of social Mm. development is it a good fit is it a good fit for the rest of the world i really don't think so but i wouldn't invalidate it because they have a lot of belief inside their own economy that this is something that can work for them and i i kind of think that's why v6 sees this v6 is the intrusion point into that other domain i mean i i think the itu is for all intents and purposes the layer eight layer nine component here right yes i would agree and those ideas they go straight to layer eight layer nine behavior right and then they 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 build their they build their team and then say go 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 fight the battles at the appropriate Appropriate locations yep. to move the to move the but then, uh, battle but then, come, but then come down the stack a bit. Do you remember some days? And again, rumor. Who knows if it's really true? It used to be said if you worked at Cisco and you succeeded in getting a draft to RFC, there was a big fat bonus check. <laughs> so, are people motivated for petty reasons? Yeah, they sure are. If you get a draft up and you get an RFC with authorship, is it good for your career in the company? Heck yeah. 
And yeah. I'm sure that's true in China. So Absolutely. I think individual motivations are, is this a forum we have representation in? Yes. Does it open up the possibility of foreign travel in the future? Yes. Is it good for my career development? Yes. Does it align with national strategic directions? Yes. Dot, dot, dot. Which means I'm unlikely to be told to stop it for silly national reasons. Yes, I'm in. Right. Yeah, I, I, I can see all of those alignments. And, I, and certainly, you know, maybe this is a bit of a wake up call for for those that, you know, had all the advantages the first time around with IPv4 of really setting the standards and directions uh, for those in yeah. North America and, and Europe that really, you know, which also got the lion's share of address space and now realizing that the the market is very different today with what is possible with v6 uh given the just fraction small fraction of of global unicast addresses we've actually allocated out to hand out it's just so if you infinitesimally small if you kind of come to a pragmatic perspective if you were doing a build out of a network in the north american market you would really be looking at cisco juniper class equipment buy and it comes with an incredibly long-lived network management framework these guys have been doing it for decades so you're getting something that you could go to your ops people and say, here's a framework for network management that completely aligns with the technology base you're used to. And that's going to give you 24 by 7 fault finding, diagnostic management intrusion into the entire fabric. You can do version based updates across your whole network. You can do TR169 remote control of your edge devices. The lot, we've got it sold. Come into the Chinese market. Are they going to buy Cisco and Juniper for their core? No. They're looking at domestic supply. Do these guys have an NMS that's got 15 to 20 years depth that is completely integrated and that does all of that stuff? No. Their big hole is in that management framework. And so a lot of the stuff that they bring to the table about use of address behavior in V6, to me, the signal is how do I manage a complex network with millions and millions of customers and devices when I don't have a manufacturer-backed NMS that I understand yet? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's 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 a, it's a really interesting space. It was just an observation on my part, just to sort of seeing seeing things over the last few years, and and it seems to align with your perspective also, which is which is sort of nice to know that at least uh, directionally, I'm at least uh, maybe facing the right direction. <laughs> Oh, I think you are totally. Yeah. yeah, that's 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 super fascinating. Um, I, I don't know. Is it was there anything else from a sort of Asia Pacific region uh, discussion wise we we wanted to touch on? Was there anything else that we wanted to highlight uh, just in terms of talking through really quickly? I didn't know if there was anything else that was you know caught your interest. I mean, you you mentioned quickly the ULA sort of conversation and then the the extension header conversation from the ITF side. Um, and I, and I think those are, are things that the audience should be tracking and probably paying attention to because they're definitely they're definitely interesting things that are going on in that space and, and what people are trying to sort of figure out. <laughs> At least that's I'm, our observation. I'm quite interested in how V6 is going to translate into the low Earth orbit segment. There's a big footprint of the community in Asia that is outside the central metro area. And so we have the latent untapped market in India, in China, in Laos, in Thailand. Lots and lots of our economies have places that are just logistically a nightmare to pull high-speed fiber. Mm -hmm. And geo is great for one-way communications. And that's fine if your life is television. But the minute you get, excuse me, breakfast, the minute you get COVID, effects and people work from home and you need that bandwidth both ways, Zoom, low latency, man, it's not good. So Starlink is really, really interesting in our footprint. We have island communities that are looking at needs there. We have these other rural and remote in the large landlocked places that need it. Now, I haven't seen big signals that those Leo guys are walking in the V6 room, tracking V6, doing full V6 deploy early. What's really going to happen with this segment? Is it going to go six properly? Yeah, I, th I thought Starlink had IPv6. Correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, but I think uh, Nick had mentioned that he gets six on his Starlink configuration. But I could be 100% wrong on that. So no one quote me on that. No one quote me on that. I, I guess because, we'll reach out and find out. Because because at the moment, it's also it's the it's the bent pipe. 
right? It's ground station based, so there's no inter-satellite hop. Now let's project forward to when the low orbit technology moves to a place where there are enough of squadrons of these birds flying around that your path to a, a destination in Japan could be two satellite hops and a down in Japan rather than having to be um, bent pipe signal to a ground station near you and then landline to get to Japan. You could be looking at an RTT that was halved. And so financial markets in particular are really, really interested in the potential for low Earth orbit technology to give them a market leading advantage for trading and activity. But I think domestic supply, particularly now that DCs are ubiquitous, I mean, everything's cloud, 75% of everything is cloud now. It's going to be very interesting how that technology survives and works when it becomes into satellite with maybe complex mesh networks. I want to believe six has an advantage that there will be behaviors in six that are amenable to opportunistic advantages in this space. Mm -hmm. There was some stuff Deutsche Telekom were playing with that was doing bit marking high in the address prefix to denote complex network technology. And there's some stuff that um, content providers have been doing. If you're binge watching the latest episode of some Scandi crime, they can actually assign addresses that they know denote stored in your local Redis cluster, and you start getting the following episodes cached locally rather than getting them from a long haul location. There's stuff there that I think is a really, really good fit for six. When you talk six and addresses, I know I'm a bit boring about addresses. I obsess about this because I work in a registry. But that stuff to me is going to be really fascinating, really right. interesting. I agree that caching one is really cool about the address embed for content and you can actually start people at certain points even within the content cache based off of the of the address that they actually solicit or ask for it's really cool well i don't know i i guess uh <laughs> i think i think we're I think we covered a lot of stuff. <laughs> I had a ball. I was really, really lovely for you to let me rap on this on this podcast. I appreciate the opportunity a lot. Yeah, no, it's a great fun and it, it just fantastic insight for us because we're just so bent on the North American market here. It's just it's great to be able to talk to someone have a, that has a different lens, a different perspective about what's going on in the rest of the world and can give us some really good insights on it. So I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, if people yeah. are interested in labs measurement, um, am, am I allowed to do a promo? Oh, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Tell folks where they can... Where they can so the URL that you want to look at is stats, S-T-A-T-S dot labs dot apnic dot net slash IPv6. And that's a launch pad for a map-based graphical display of all of the global V6 measurements that Jeff in, is doing in labs. It can also do DNSSEC and TCP, RTT, drop rates, um, RPKI. There's a number of parallel experiments. And many of those actually segment into interesting questions about V6 as well. So it's a generic platform for measurement. Um, it respects the ISO 3166 country code model with a couple of augmentations to do regional summaries. And it's a really, really good basis of looking at what's going on in some place other than the market you know. In particular, because it's random placement, it's a kind of approximation for market share. You can't say it's exact, but its indication of top five or top 10 sample count by AS is a reasonably interesting model for the customer relativities for those ASs providing service. And it could be very interesting for people who have maybe measurement at an exchange point or packet flow rates at their own border, looking at things like V6 to another AS to understand, yeah, but what's the relativity of that AS in the context of their market economy? You can kind of get that data out of the stats pages at lab. So I really recommend people to look at it. Jeff in particular is fascinated by the EH question, and he's been testing continuously across IETF and since. So the conversation on the mailing list between him and Nalini and Fernando and um, Eric Vinke doing James, you can see the lab's take on EH packet um, reliability on that place as well. Cool. Well, 
I'm like V6, we run out of space for this podcast, but thanks to today's guest, George Michaelson, how can the audience actually follow you? Uh, you, you gave the links for, for your content there, but how can folks follow you and, and reach I, out if they want to engage? I'm, I'm at blog.apnic.net. I write um, short pieces there every couple of weeks, and I'm really happy for people to, to find me there or just get in touch through um, email, ggm at apnic.net. And thank, to, thank you to both of you for letting me come on. I've had a ball, guys. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you can reach the IPv6 Buzz podcast on Twitter at IPv6 Buzz. You can also hit up each one of us on Twitter. You can get Tom at IPv6 Tom, uh, Scott at Scott Hogan, me at E. Horley. Uh, thanks for listening to the IPv6 Buzz. You can find us on the Packet Pushers or any of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for IPv6 Buzz. And if you like the show, give us ratings on iTunes. If you like this podcast, we recommend you check out Heavy Networking, Day 2 Cloud, and the Network Break Podcast, and all the other great technical content over at PacketPushers.net. So long and until next time, we'll see you on the internet. The IPv6 internet, that is. Thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz, a podcast devoted to truth, justice, and 128 bits of address space. IPv6.